I served in Vietnam. I served in Iraq. No matter where you served or when, VA has benefits for veterans of every generation. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. Good morning, everyone. I'm Timothy Lawson, your host for This Week at VA. This is episode 10. It feels like we just got started, and here we are hitting double digits. I want to quickly thank everybody for, that has taken the time to listen. If this is your first time listening, when you're finished with today's episode, please check out our first nine and hear more great stories and insights from our veterans. A couple weeks ago, I began sharing audio from our sit-down interviews with Pearl Harbor survivors. There's one more I want to share with you here. Jimmy Lee is an Army veteran that was 11 years old when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. He was sitting across the harbor watching what he calls the show. Coming back into this place here just gives me so much memories, you know, what happened December 7th. Of course, you know, I was born and raised here on a farm located right out here, uh, maybe about 100 yards from here, and that's where our farmhouse was. But anyway, when I come back here and, you know, of course, when, when the attack happened, I was feeding the pigs, of course, and one of the first things that I saw or heard was, hey, the plane's coming over, you know, at treetop level. You know, they, the, the, the roar of the planes combined with the machine gun fire and everything else. And you know, when I looked up in the sky, there were planes all over the place, you know, from way out there where the airport is today. And then way up on the hillside, up there about a good 10 miles away from here, the sky was just filled with all planes at that time. And you know, for an innocent young little farm boy, it was fascinating, never saw anything like that. So I ran down to the railroad track and sat and watched the show. And all the time while all of these were happening, you know, with that screen of about good 10, 15 miles, there were planes in front of me, and of course, across there is another marine base that was hit. And planes were out there, so I could see the attack there. And they were attacking this island, they were attacking everywhere. And the things you can see, the dive bombers coming through and, and out in that area. If you can see that right there, that's where the Arizona is. The torpedo planes would come in. And let me tell you, it was just spectacular because one of the ships was hit there is the Oklahoma. I didn't know that, but I could see the water spouts. But you know what is very interesting, as you can see, is nice, there's nothing, but I can still see the planes, the torpedoes being dropped. You know, was I scared? No. They were talking about maneuvers all the time. And we thought this was a war game, but how can it be? It looks so real. But Again, I say, too young to know. But seeing all of the explosion, and then finally, you can see where the Arizona is now. The flames, the flames that were so high, a couple of hundred feet high. And then the huge explosion, something you'll never forget. But sitting out here, we could hear the explosion. We could not feel the concussion, but we could hear it and the big ball of fire and everything else. And that was really something. Well, the first one that I saw here on this side of the island, that was where 
The Utah was hit, of course, I didn't know that at the time, but it was right on this side of the island, and that was, they had about big fire and smoke, and I didn't know what it is, but that's where the carriers were supposed to have been, and I think they mistook that as a being a carrier, so that's what they hit. But again, most of the action was on this side. Now, where the Arizona is, the white structure, that's where they had a ship called the Nevada. We found that out later. And that Nevada was burning, it was smoking, it was moving, trying to escape. Here, you have no ships now, but they had a lot of ships located in this area. But not one of them were attacked or damaged. But that ship, the Nevada, was coming and was trying to escape. And the significance about this is that it was moving, smoking, burning. The guns were firing. But all of a sudden, we could see these bombers coming in, dive bombers, you know. And right out there, I could see the bombs dropping on the ship, blowing up on the ship. But the ship don't sink. And all of a sudden, those dive bombers would pull up in the sky only to be followed with other aircraft coming. I can still hear the machine gun fire strafing the ship, you know, right in front of me, watching that. And the ship don't sink, and here goes the plane, it dives off. And all during the time over there, planes bombing, smoke firing, and you can see where the Arizona is again. There were several ships over there that exploded, all ammunition ships that blew up. And you could see the sky, the big clouds of smoke and fire. And it's all caused by the explosion. From here, you could not see the ship. But just think over the tree line, all the clouds of smoke and explosion, we could hear that. But, you know, not knowing what it is, but all the action was there. One of the most significant thing about this is that sitting on a railroad track and as you look up in the sky, right now it's cloudy, but that day it was nice and clear. There were some planes that were flying real high. They weren't dropping any bombs and none of them were shot down, but the sky was filled with anti-aircraft fire. You could see black smoke, puffs of smoke, firing over there and none of the planes were hit. And you know, sitting on a railroad track with not one piece of the shell or shrapnel fell down on us, let alone with all the gunfire, the planes over there, there was not one shot at all way. And this is what it was like. And all of this time here, you think we're scared not at all. I was sitting on the railroad track myself, but it didn't take too long, maybe about an hour and a half later, that's when we were notified that, hey, we're being attacked with the bombs, the Japanese are bombing us. Furthermore, the troops had landed, and that's when I tell you, fear struck in. We were so scared, and this is where it wasn't fun anymore for this young kid. It was scary. I tell you, I, I, I just didn't know how to act. I think I was just crying, you know. And my parents finally found me in the railroad track and said, let's get out of here and we've got to get up into the hills. And that's when I tell you my life changed at that time.
What an experience it had to be. I appreciate Jimmy for sharing his perspective that we don't get to hear about too often. This week's feature interview is with Gregorio Kishkatan. Greg is a Native American and a Marine veteran. When he first arrived to my office to do this interview, he thought he was simply going to be a veteran of the day. But he was open to a podcast interview and ended up sharing some emotional aspects of his life. He talks about joining the military, his transition, overcoming adversity, and working for VA. Enjoy. Great, Kishkatan. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. You are a Marine Corps veteran, like I, Semper Fidelis. Semper Fidelis, yes um, I am. You're an employee for VA, and uh, you are a Native American. That is correct. Yeah. The Native American community's contribution to the U.S. military, mm-hmm. I think it's underwhelmingly acknowledged through most of the outlets. So VA likes to uh, remind people of the, you know, it goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Before we get into that part of your life, uh-huh. let's talk about the one thing we all have in common, and that's joining the military. Uh-huh. Uh, what Bring us back to your decision to join the United States military. Okay. Well, th- uh, the story that I always tell people, and it's true, uh, I wasn't going to join the Marine Corps. I was going to join the Navy. And I was going in to talk to the Naval recruiter, and he was in the office. The only one that was there was the Marine Corps recruiter with his dress blues on. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of looking and thinking, wow, that's a sharp uniform. And I, I honestly almost headed out, and he goes, excuse me, son. You know, have, have you uh, ever thought about joining the Marine Corps? And I said, no, sir. And he said, uh, well, come and sit down. And next thing you know, <laughs> I'm sitting down talking to this guy like practically all day. I mean, it, it felt that way. And then by when the sun started to set, we were going to my mom's house. Now, mind you, I was 17. Mm-hmm. And so he had to get her to sign. Yeah. And so we pulled into my family's home, and <clears throat> he goes in with me, and my mom's just kind of looking like, what's going on here? You know, and uh, he says, well, ma'am, you know, your son has decided he wanted to join the United States Marine Corps. She said he has. And uh, she looked at me and said, are you sure this is what you want to do? And I said, yes, it is. And so she signed, and, and I went to boot camp uh, in December of that uh, that year after I gra- I was still in high school, Yeah. you know, when they signed me. And so December after we graduated, I went, uh, December 9th, uh, 1984. Okay. It's uh, those dress blues. They can uh, they can yeah. do it. Yeah, I don't really get into like the branch war discussion with people, but yeah. there's two things that I think the <laughs> Marine Corps clearly does better than uh, than the rest of the branches. And of course, the first one can be a fair argument, but I think our dress blues are just clearly the best looking. And the people may yell at me for that one. But the second one, we we celebrate our birthday way better than any other branch oh, does. And that one is not even close. Did you do anything special for the birthday? No. Uh, I did the cake cutting ceremony here at VA Central Offices Okay. on the 9th. Uh, last year, uh, I went to three balls and, and the military ball. Yeah. And so this year, I kind of wanted to lay low because I went to so many last year. Sure. So what was your experience in, in the Marine Corps like? Uh, what was your occupation in, in the Marine Corps? My and- MOS. My, my military occupational specialty was 0351. So basically, okay. you know, do you know what 0351 is? Yeah, you can okay. tell you can tell the audience. Okay, the 0351s basically they're part of the the uh, the grunts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we the ground pounders, that's what we call them. And uh, the 0351s basically are the Dragon Weapon System crewmen. It's a wire guided missile that has a 99.9 percent chance of hitting its target. So basically, we blow up tanks and armored vehicles. Yeah. Did you, um, so what, what year did you 
enlist again? I enlisted in uh, December of 84. 84, okay. Um, so did you get to do any deployments? Where did, yes. where did you get to bring your, your skill set to? I, I uh, Yes, I got out in 93, I believe it was. Yes, 93. Okay. So I went to Afghanistan for one tour, and then I went to uh, Iraq for one tour, Kabul, Afghanistan. So uh, eight years, so you did two enlistments then. Yes. Um, what made you decide to re-enlist that, uh, that first time? <clears throat> well, the, the uh, Desert Storm, the first Iraq invasion, had started and I just thought to myself well you know you already did one tour it wasn't that really that bad you know of course I didn't know what we were going to be put up against in something like that because most of us that were in at that time had never experienced any combat yeah and so I thought what the heck let's let's go ahead and let's go ahead and give them another four years and okay so, so that's why I enlisted plus you know I'm very patriotic patriotic I have about eight immediate relatives that been Marines and then a couple of Navy and a couple. So I come from a very large family uh, that has a military presence or has been in the military. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then what, um, what was your experience in those deployments? What was my experience? Yeah. <sighs> it, was, it, was, it was different. Mm -hmm. It was new. Um, it was scary. You know, a lot of the things that we had to go through at the time, I, uh, I don't know if you remember, but I do. I remember very well. A lot of the equipment that we had was somewhat insufficient. Wasn't sufficient. Yeah. yeah. We had a lot of Humvees that didn't have doors. Uh, we weren't fully protected. Um, you know, there was a lot of things like you know the, the landmines and so forth that we were not aware that was going to happen. There was a lot of stuff. I think that. Uh, I mean, we're, we're a force of readiness, and I do believe that we were prepared. But, you know, when you go into combat or you go into war, you don't really know what to expect. You just kind of play it by ear a little bit. I mean, you can't, you know, there's no, I mean, there are manuals about war, but, but until you get into the situation, sure, you really don't know what to expect. Yeah. You know. So you got out in 93. Uh -huh. What prompt, so what, why this time around did you decide to separate and not re-enlist? <clears throat> well, the reason why I decided to separate and not enlist this time is that I just felt like that, uh, I wanted to experience more in life. And also they put me on a disability at mm. that point because I have PTSD Okay, and, uh, <clears throat> and a couple other things. Anyway, so they, they put me out. I went in front of a medical board. They deemed me not, I could, in other words, they told me I couldn't re-enlist okay. you know, because of my PTSD. Was that disappointing for you at the time? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was very disappointing because I thought that I would... Um, make a career out of it, mm -hmm. but unfortunately it was cut short and it wasn't my choice. Yeah. So you kind of, it's kind of like doing a job that you've known, not, I wouldn't say forever, but for a long time, mm -hmm. any job, and then you're, at one point you're told, okay, well we can no longer use you, you know, and then they kind of push you out the door and they're like, okay, now it's time to defend for yourself, yeah. you know. I grabbed the bull by the horns, I went with it, you know, mm -hmm. I got an education, you know, this is my including the Marine Corps, this is my fourth government agency to work for. Okay. So all has not been that bad. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of times that <clears throat> that me as a, as a military guy, as a Marine, I left a lot of my Marine Corps buddies behind, and I'm still friends with, you know, well, the last time I checked on Facebook, 26 of them. Okay. And so you kind of look back and you kind of think to yourself, wow, I left them there. You know, how could I have done that? I didn't have a choice. So in that, the first six months after you separated, what, uh -huh. was, what was that like? Did, what, what was you, you said you, you went and got your education? Did you mm -hmm. use the GI Bill to, to get a degree? or No, I used Chapter 31. Chapter 31? Yeah. Okay. 
What was your first job coming out of the military? Uh, my first job coming out of the military wasn't the government. My first job coming out of the military, I was a, was a stalker at a grocery store. Okay. And, uh, it was okay. I mean, you know, sure. it paid the bills. And uh, within a year, or yeah, within a year, um, I had started taking the postal exams. And then I got hired on at the post office. Okay. Because uh, you got to remember, I'm a little bit older than you. Yeah. And uh, so I worked for the post office for nine years, working my way up into management mm -hmm. for the post office. And at the time, finishing up my degree at the University of Oklahoma. Okay. So. Uh, sooner, right? Boomer Sooner, yes. Boomer Sooner, yeah. OU. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of veterans, when they transition out, um, are in a, they find themselves in a, in a search of purpose, renewed purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something that you experienced? Too? Oh, most definitely. Yeah. yeah. How long was it until you found that renewed purpose? You go through a lot before you get to that, that point where you find the purpose, or at least I did. So I, I would have to say 10 years. What were you doing that uh, when you finally felt that way? Well, the, the, what I started doing is I started volunteering for uh, nonprofit organizations like the Red Cross. Uh, another one that I sit on the board of directors, it's called Home for the Holidays, where we send people home that are terminally ill and can't, can't afford. And then uh, <clears throat> then I got involved in my, my ASOs, which is the Marine Corps League, the Marine Corps Association, uh, uh, vet, what is it called, For, uh, Veterans of Foreign War? DFW? DFW, uh, yeah, and yeah. DAV, and, and uh, uh, the other one, I can't remember the name, American Legion. So I got involved in those organizations, mm -hmm. and what I started doing was immersing myself into those organizations and doing everything I could or can to provide, you know, uh, any kind of assistance that we could to our brothers and sisters out there that are that are uh, in need. Yeah. You know, so when I started doing that, I started feeling better about myself and better about my situation and dealing with some of those demons that were in the past of, you know, of inadequacy and stuff like that. This question is going to get a little deeper. And a lot of veterans, including myself, get out and, and face strong emotional crisis, mm -hmm. um, depression, anger, mm -hmm. guilt, etc. Is that something you're comfortable with, with talking about? If, if yeah, we can. Okay. What were some of the initial feelings you felt after you left? What were some of the initial feelings? Yeah. I didn't really feel anything because I, I, uh, I kind of recoiled and I went into a space yeah. and I stayed there for about a year, you know, so I didn't want people around me, you know, I just, I just didn't want anybody around me, you know. So, okay, so I'm going to be honest since it's veterans out there because I'm, I'm very much an advocate for veteran health and sure. veteran and suicide prevention. I, I, when I first, when I got out and, and there was a few years that went by and everything and, and I had to deal with, you know, that, those, those issues, I, <clears throat> I started withdrawing and then I, I became depressed severely depressed. I was depressed for about a week and a half. I couldn't get out of bed and I just lay there and I couldn't even get out of bed to go to the bathroom. I mean, I, I did, but you know, it was hard. Yeah. So one day I said, okay, you have to go to the VA and get some help because this is, you laying here, you're not accomplishing anything. So I went ahead, went to the VA, they did all their tests and everything and this is for the veterans out there that are still suffering. They diagnosed me with with PTSD, bipolar, MDD, anxiety disorder, panic disorder, psychotic features. Okay? Yeah. It's a lot it's a lot to swallow, you know. And so and then they put me on a lot of medication. And medication 
it worked, and then sometimes it wouldn't work, and then sometimes it made me a, uh, it made me a person that I, I didn't feel anything. I didn't, you couldn't make me cry. I wouldn't get happy. I wouldn't get sad or nothing. Yeah. I just felt like I was a, a zombie. And so there were times where I felt suicidal. And I, 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 since, again, since this is the veterans out there listening, and I'm encouraging them to go help, get help when they feel this way, as I did. But I did attempt suicide one time. And uh, obviously I wasn't successful. So I, after that happened, I went up to the VA. And, you know, they asked you that question, you know, are you suicidal? And I told them, yeah. And so they put me in, in the third floor, which is at the VA. I was at Texas at the time. That's where they put people that have psychiatric problems. It's taken a long time. I mean, I don't feel any of those, I don't feel like that anymore. Right. That doesn't mean that I'm not on medication because I, I think I'll be on medication the rest of my life. I'm doing better. I'm moving up. I, I've made a name for myself since I've moved to Vaco. Uh, I have a lot to be pr proud of. I think sometimes in life we're given a second chance and we need to grab a hold of those horns and say, okay, you know, I can do something with this or I can stay where I was, which is not a pretty place. Yeah. How long ago was that then? That that happened? Yeah. Probably around 2007. Like it's disheartening every, how often we hear this story from veterans where like where um, there was a depression sets in and you can't get out of it and because you know many veterans like yourself you withdraw first mm. and then you experience the depression and so that bridge whether the bridges are never burned, but you're so far from them that it seems like it's difficult to really get that help. Um, and so you're withdrawn at that moment, at your, like your worst moment, which leaves you even more vulnerable. I had a similar, well, similar in the sense that I've also attempted suicide. Um, and for me, it was just a moment of panic, you know, mm -hmm. in a time of my life that was depressed and overwhelming and stuff like that. And it's just amazing how irrational depression can be. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I often talk to veterans about when it comes to depression is, especially their families, like when their families want to talk to me about suicide, they're like, I just want them to know that I love them, don't they understand that? It's like, well, no, they don't, because mm -hmm. they're depressed and depression's an irrational state. So, mm -hmm. you know, your objective love doesn't, doesn't connect. So that was 2007, mm -hmm. it's 2016 now, almost a decade uh, away from that. I mean, tell us about your recovery out of that. You know, after the attempts, you know, tell us about your recovery out of that. Recovery out of that? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, you know, to, to, to explain my recovery out of that, I'd have to explain my recovery out of something else. Okay. I, I, over, I overcame another obstacle in my life, and the date of that date is December 18th, 2004. So up to date... I had a drug problem, though so I've been clean since uh, December 18, 2004. That's another serious issue that I know that VA is trying to address. Yes. Um, yes. Is um, any sort of uh, substance addiction or abuse among mm -hmm. veterans. Yeah. One thing that, that helps veterans get by is knowing that they're not alone. Yeah. What helped you, what prompted um, you finally <laughs> getting over the, your addiction? <clears throat> I was married at the time, and... Uh, this person, she was a, a, a physician, a doctor of all things, and we were able to, to afford it any time we wanted it. I didn't live in the streets oh, yeah. like most people. I lived in a $800,000 home in Texas. Yeah. And so I, st I started looking at my life and I started thinking to myself, you know, this is not 
the way people are supposed to live, you know. And I tried to, to get us help. She didn't want it. So I ended up walking out that day, December 18, 2004. Okay. And that was when it all ended. And I didn't, not that I think I'm, <clears throat> I should receive a pat on the back, but I didn't go to any kind of therapy. I did I just quit on my own. Okay. It was hard. Yeah. I went through the withdrawals, the DTs, like everybody else. Sure. You know, but I just said to myself, you know, this is this is this is crazy. This is insane. I have, but I I have a very supportive family, you know, and so my family was there for me. My the good friends I had were, and I just I went to NA, you know. I, I even went to AA for a little while and, uh, you know, uh, had sponsors, had sponsees, uh, was, a, I was even a, a recovery coach at one time. Okay. And I, I find that <clears throat> when I deal with people that have similar issues that are just coming into uh, the same problems I had, it helps me because it reminds me of where I came from. Sure. So I still, even today, if people have issues, uh, whether it's depression or whatever, uh, uh, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, whatever, I try and help them yeah. in any way I can. So <clears throat> then your recovery out of your suicide attempt in 2007, uh -huh. what was that experience like? What was the experience itself like? Yeah, like what, what helped you, like when you, when you were unsuccessful in your attempt, what would you do next? How did you get out of that? Oh, well, I didn't really get out of it immediately. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't something that I just sit back and it happened and I said to myself, whoa, I don't want to do that again, you know. Right. It wasn't like that at all. Uh, I still went through that and I still went through thoughts. I still went through, like I told my cousin one time, I said, I still sit at the bus stop and say, get up and walk in front of the bus. I used to tell myself yeah. that. But the thing about it is, is today I don't, that, that's, that's no longer part of it. And I think a road to recovery is how you want it to be, where you want to be, there's so many positive things about it, but if you don't take the next step to move forward, you're always going to be stuck back here where you were that when you were miserable, you know. And yeah. I don't want to be there. Sure. I don't want to be there. Bringing you to current day, <coughs> uh -huh. uh, employee of the VA, been working for three government agencies uh -huh. since the Marine Corps. Uh -huh. I've heard of the post office, you're at VA now. What's the middle one? Okay, well, I, the post office was the first one. Okay. And then the Dallas VA Medical was the second. Got it. And then Dallas-Fort Worth National Cemetery, and then VA Central Offices. Okay. How do you like working at VA? Um, being a veteran with the experiences that you have, knowing the challenges that veterans face, um, being on both sides now as someone yeah. who went to VA for the needs that they have and now at VA trying to give those needs back, what, what's, how do, what's your... Uh, that holistic experience like? I, I love working for the VA. I, I, I actually loved even more working at the cemetery level because yeah. you're dealing with the family, the loved ones, the veteran who's deceased. You know, to me it was where I wanted to be. At the VA Medical Center I worked in the hospice unit so I, I, did, I dealt with veterans that were actually dying yeah. and I was there when some of them took their last breath. You know, I think God put me there for a reason. So, um, but as far as working for the VA, I love working for the VA. Um, you know, it's, it's a great job to have. I mean, but I think sometimes that people, ha ha they have a tendency to lose sight of 
what we're truly here for. Something we mentioned at the top of the interview that we haven't got a chance to get into because things got deep real quick. Yeah. Uh, your Native American heritage. Yes. Um, what tribe are you? Kickapoo of Oklahoma and Mexico. Okay. But my, I'm still unfamiliar with... Uh, the the Nat- Kickapoo? Uh, yeah, well, with that tribe okay. specifically and just with Native American heritage in general. Oh, um, there's so much to see. Oh, I'm sure. There's so much to know. Go to the uh, National Native American Museum mm-hmm. just down the street. Actually, I was the chairperson for VA's uh, National Heritage Month this month. Okay. And Dr. Herman Viola came over, and he's from the National Native American thing. And then I was asked to speak at FEMA and Department of Homeland Security. Okay. So I did a lot of speaking yeah. this, this month. Okay. Did you, like, growing <coughs> up, did your family, were there a lot of traditions still being yes. held as you grew up? Yes. What are some of those traditions? <clears throat> Growing up, uh, when I was younger, uh, and, and we actually have talked about it this month because I have a lot of family uh, on my father's side, um, a lot of the, the women wore the traditional buckskin dresses. Okay. Uh, they wore the what they call regalia, but that was an everyday uh, outfit for them. They didn't wear clothes like, a, like that we are wearing. Mm-hmm. They wore the traditional because they were old, you know, from the old school. Um, they still had, we had teepees up. They still had, pay, you know what peyote is? Yes. Okay. They had peo- regular peyote meetings. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the land in Oklahoma, the Kishkaton name itself is is, uh, is a good name because uh, we own a lot of land in Oklahoma. Uh, there is also a Kishkaton Lake. Uh, oh. uh, you know, the, the family is, is uh, you know, they just have a good name, yeah. you know, in the tribe and in the communities. And was it um, you know, before the interview? We were, um, we were mentioning how you know the Native American community has contribu- contributed uh, significantly to the U.S. military. Uh, one of the highest contributors when it comes to percentage of of population available for service, um, and that dates all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. Um, did you um, did you find many other Native veterans uh, or service members? I guess when you when you were in. But yeah. when you when you met another Native, was there? Did you learn about each other? Mm-hmm. Was there a, like a yeah? Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. When 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 us Native Americans approach each other, and it's like almost like an intuition. We yeah. know we know you're Native American. Usually we're right. We're sometimes we're not, but most of the times the first question we'll ask that person is, "What tribe are you?" And they'll tell us, mm-hmm. and then we know. Um, there was uh, one guy in particular that I that I was stationed with, and he was blonde hair and blue eyes. But you got to remember, you can't underestimate people. And I didn't know he was Native American. And he, we were talking one day, and he's talking about how he used to dance at, back in Wyoming. He was from Cheyenne, Wyoming, and uh, and my aunt's from there, and she's Native American. And I, I, I said to him, I said, "What kind of dance do you do? What do you mean?" And he's like, "Well, you know, Native American." And I was like, "You're not Native American." He said, "Yes, I am." And he showed me his pictures, and I was like, "Holy! I didn't didn't know this one was because yeah. he had really blonde hair and blue eyes." How have you been able to share uh, your heritage with um, with other friends and family members? Is and is that something that you? I don't, do you have children now? No, I, I no, I don't have any children. Is that something you, if you were to end up having children, that you look forward to being able to pass down to? Most definitely. I mean, um, let's step back a little bit further, sure. and I'll tell you, real quickly. My mother had 12 kids, and so My goodness. when I was in high school, I was burping babies, teething babies, and changing diapers. So there's me and one other sister, 
said, we don't want kids. Yeah. And even to this day, I don't want any kids. Okay. I think she has probably about 40 nieces, 40 grandchildren now. We, I educate my nieces and nephews. Okay. And I, sometimes I even educate my own family. They don't know about anything <clears throat> to do with our family. Like recently, because it's really hard in, uh, investigating or looking into your, your genealogy when you're Native American because a lot of tribes didn't give, keep good records. Yeah. But I did find out that my great-grandfather, uh, great excuse me, George Whitewater, was a paratrooper in World War II, and he was also a chief. He was a chief amongst the, uh, the Kickapoos of, of, of Oklahoma and Mexico, and there's also the Kickapoos of Kansas and Texas. So anyway, that kind of information, those kinds of pictures, I even found pictures at the National Archives uh, that nobody even knew existed. I just get on the internet and I play and I look for things. And so that's, that's how I try and educate them about those things. Sure. But unfortunately, <clears throat> you know, and I've shared this because I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm a tribal elder now with the tribe, that we're, we're losing a lot of heritage, we're losing a lot of history because the younger generations just don't seem to have any interest in it. Yeah. That's what I was actually my next question is, <clears throat> as you're becoming of the older generation, how are you keeping in touch with that part of your life? <clears throat> as the older generation yeah uh, well you know I <clears throat> I keep in contact with a lot of my family that's my age or older uh, I speak to as many older people as I can because one day their stories they have are going to be gone because they didn't they didn't tell those stories to other people and nobody seemed to be interested yeah you know one thing I, I used to love to do and I still love to do when I worked in hospice unit at the VA Medical Center there was a World War one veteran there one of the last. His name was Mr. Graves. And I used to sit for him with him hours on end and listen to his stories about World War One. And one day he just looked at me and he just said, Greg, the things I've seen, you know, and I said, I'm yeah. Mr. Graves, I can imagine, you know. But now I've got his stories here too, you know. Yeah. So that's, that's great. That's a blessing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a blessing. If someone's considering a career at VA, um, what would you advise them, you know, in considering a career like I know there's a lot of hesitancy and people have a little apprehension about wanting to work at VA because of the, of the public perception that VA has, but you've clearly had a very rewarding experience. What yeah. would you say to someone that's browsing USA jobs, sees a VA opening, mm -hmm. and they're considering a job? I would tell people uh, to go ahead and apply for those positions and always keep in mind that the reason where you're, you're wanting to come here in the first place, because 99% of the people that want to come here, period, is usually patriotic or has some idea that they want to do good and do uh, want to provide services and help the veterans out. You know, as long as you maintain that same idea that, you know, I'm coming here and I want to, I want to make a difference, you know. The perception of the VA, and, and this really kind of irritates me because the VA is a huge organization, just like the Postal Service was a huge organization. Uh, Postal Service, 770,000 employees, I forget how many of the VA. You can't judge one facility on all 500 or how many of our facilities are out there. They're not yeah. all the same. Every one of them are ran by, differently, mm -hmm. you know, in some instances. I mean, yes, they have standards they're supposed to follow, but they're not all the same. Yeah. And so when I started doing that, and I had a girl, she was a director of a VA, and she says, you know, Greg, she goes, you can't base your decision on one facility. And I thought, you're right, I can't. You know, yeah. because believe it or not, in all the years that I've 
been coming to the VA and services at the VA medical centers, and I've been to five, I've never had any bad treatment. Now I've had some hard, I have had some issues, but the services, I've never had bad service from the VA. Yeah. No. Cool. No. Craig, I really appreciate you uh, sharing with us part of your heritage getting deep with us and sharing some more vulnerable parts of your life. I really do appreciate that. I know no um, I've talked to a lot of veterans about suicide, depression, and other, other things, and um, I know that the audience really appreciates it, and it's, um, it, you know, it, it provides a coping mechanism, empathy, stuff like that, and it's really powerful. And most of all, thank you for your service to, uh, in the Marine Corps, and then now to our veterans through VA. You're welcome. Thank you. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. So shortly after Greg and I did this interview, he accepted an offer at the Department of Interior. So on behalf of VA, I want to thank Greg for his dedicated service to veterans and his wonderful work here at the Department of Veterans Affairs. If you'd like to explore job options at VA, check out vacareers.va.gov. You can also follow them on Twitter at VA Careers to get real-time information on opportunities that may be perfect for you. Today's veteran of the day is Army veteran Derek Rodenbeck. Derek served as military police from 2005 to 2015 during the Iraq War. We thank Derek for his service. To read his full write-up and other Veteran of the Day posts, visit blogs.va.gov. That wraps up episode 10. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you haven't already, please subscribe in iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Should you have any questions you'd like to have answered here on the podcast, please tweet them to us using hashtag VAPodcast or email us newmedia at va.gov. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off.